Dr. Michael Roizen. Dr. Michael Roizen. You, the Owner's Manual Radio Show. You're listening to You, the Owner's Manual Radio Podcast. This is the B1152B. Yes, we've been doing it over 21 years. 1152B, and we have a great guest for you. The Bs are always guests. The A's, the latest medical news of the week and what it means to you. Our sponsors are lifesfirstnaturals.com, the makers of both bovine colostrum and true biotics. And you can go to their website, lifesfirstnaturals.com, to see the randomized control trials they've done to show the benefits of those. The other sponsor, of course, is our own website, longevityplaybook.com. This is living with breast cancer. And a lot of the areas that Jennifer Shin will cover, she's an MD, MPH at Mass General. And this book is, although published by Johns Hopkins University Press, is out of three, maybe three and a half experts from Mass General in Boston. You're going to learn how to make sense of your diagnosis and prepare for treatment if you or a friend has breast cancer. And the point of that is, whether it is breast cancer or any other cancer, actually probably any chronic medical condition, the same thing goes, how to make sense of your diagnosis and prepare for treatment. How to understand the different types of therapies, tests, and scans are all covered in the book, Living with Breast Cancer, that Jennifer Shin is the lead author on, as well as how to manage symptoms and side effects of treatment, such as nausea, fatigue, shortness of breath, weight fluctuations, depression, which medicines, medications, lifestyle modifications can help with those symptoms, and how to live and cope if, God forbid, you have progressive cancer. The key points in this is that Jennifer Shin is a master of this. She is a medical oncologist who specializes in breast cancer and a palliative care specialist at Mass General in Boston. Her co-authors, David Ryan is chief of the hematology oncology at Mass General, and Vicki Jansen is chief of palliative and geriatric medicine at Mass General. And why I said the half is the co-author is Michelle Seaton is the editor who put all of them in together, so it sounds like only one person actually wrote it. Jennifer, thanks very much for coming on. One of the problems patients say is the delay in getting the appointment with the oncologist. Is there a shortage of breast oncologists or oncologists who deal with breast cancer now? Hi, Dr. Rosen. Thank you so much for having me on. I'm really delighted to be a part of the show and to be able to talk to your viewers about this really important topic. You know, I live in Boston and practice in Boston, and we have a lot of breast-specific oncologists here. I think it depends on where you are in the country. Oncology teams hopefully are going to be able to get the patients in as soon as possible to be able to help patients with the diagnosis and get started on therapy. And when one gets the diagnosis that there's something abnormal on a mammogram. And we'll talk a little bit about the new U.S. Preventive Services recommendation to get them 
earlier at age 40 rather than the American Cancer Society's 45 or their own old of 50. But before we go there, when you see, when you get that abnormality or when you get that call back and say, we want to do extra images or we want to do a biopsy of this, what's the first thing that the patient should be doing at that point? That's a great question, Dr. Risen. So I think what you're sharing is, you know, when somebody gets that initial mammogram and there's a finding that needs to be followed up on and the patient might get what's known as a callback mammogram to get some additional imaging. And I think the most important thing at that point is to really follow through and get that additional imaging. Sometimes people get a callback and the additional breast images don't show that there's anything suspicious there. And if there is something suspicious there, then usually the next step is a biopsy. So I think one of the most important things, as you alluded to, is this idea of getting in for that screening mammogram, you know, for a woman that doesn't have symptoms and has spoken to their primary care doctor about getting that first screening mammogram. That's critically important. And we, I'm happy to talk to you about those U.S. Preventive Services Task Force guidelines. And then additionally, your question about what next. And I think when you get that call back for additional images, it's so important to come in so that you can be diagnosed or those additional images might actually show there isn't a cancer there. So I really think that that first step even of getting that mammogram is so important and talking to your doctor about that. And a lot of the women get this through their gynecologist as well as some through an internist and some just through a postcard saying it's due every year, right? That's right. But when they, how fast should they ask for a referral to a specialist? When do they say, do I get a biopsy? Do I get a more studies? What's the next step in this? Yeah. So if somebody comes back and they get some additional images of their breast, sometimes an ultrasound, if something looks suspicious, a biopsy might be the next step. And once the biopsy results come back, if it shows a cancer diagnosis, that's when our team usually gets involved. I'm a breast medical oncologist, as you shared, and usually I'm meeting patients in a multidisciplinary setting alongside a surgical oncologist and often a radiation doctor as well. And we all connect together to figure out the best next steps for a patient. Sometimes, depending on what tumor, it might be surgery first. And in other cases, sometimes it's chemotherapy or targeted therapies first before surgery. And so I think after you get that biopsy, soon after you should see the team so that we can all make a decision together alongside with the patient about what the best next steps are. Now, is that meeting of the oncologist, the surgeon, the radiation therapist, is that done in a conference room where you go through a lot of patients at a time, or is that done with the patient? That's a great question, Dr. Rosen. I think it really depends on the center where you're being seen at Mass General. The specialists really convene in a conference setting, you know, at the same time, and then the patient's in a room, and then we all go in after having spoken about her case and going to talk to her about the recommendations we've had collectively. I think that could look different at different institutions. So it really just depends on where you're being seen. And where I am, we really do have the good fortune of just being able to convene together as a team and then come meet the patient at the same time. On the biopsy, is there what we're often asked is what is done about the genetic typing or the receptor typing of the tumor? Is that done routinely on the biopsy? 
or is that done, do they wait till after they see someone? What What's the process of that? And what should they be doing on the internet or with your book in the meantime? Yeah, so the, uh, the receptors that you're referring to are the estrogen receptor ER, the progesterone receptor, also known as PR, and the HER2. And those three things, once somebody has an invasive cancer diagnosis, those receptors are done routinely on the pathology, on that biopsy. And that helps us as a team give us a sense about the next best steps of a plan. As I had shared before, sometimes that's surgery first, sometimes that's chemotherapy or targeted therapy first, and those receptors are routinely done. I think in reference to your question about how one prepares, that is an excellent question. And there are many excellent online resources that patients may read about. We wrote this book because, you know, we really wanted to provide a resource for patients and families when there's a new diagnosis about all these things that you're talking about, those first steps, you know, the imaging and the biopsy and what the receptors mean, just to really help make sense of that initial diagnosis and then as your team talks to you about a treatment, what does that mean? How do you get more information about that? And we really wanted to put that in some format that patients and families could really have a handbook to go to, to really reference. After my visit, this is what they talked about. And here's some more information about that. And there are a lot of wonderful online resources as well. I am talking to Jennifer Shin, who is the author of Living with Breast Cancer, the step-by-step guide for minimizing side effects and maximizing quality of life. Now, Jennifer, we were talking about that first step. When I get to see patients after either surgery or after chemotherapy or radiation therapy, one of the universal complaints is that they feel tired and fatigued meaning they don't have as much energy as they had before the diagnosis. What's that caused by? Is there a universal process that goes on? How many people feel fatigued? Is that very common or is it very rare? Fatigue is a really common side effect, and I think there are many inputs into why a person might feel fatigued after a diagnosis or as they are going through treatments. I think there are Oftentimes, if someone's getting chemotherapy, for example, the chemotherapy can make somebody tired. The different medicines we give people can make people tired. And so either the cancer, people being less active than normal, the therapies that we give, sometimes people are having a really tough time struggling and might feel depressed. So there are many inputs. And I think that in some part, one of the real inspirations to write this book is that I, as you had mentioned, sit in two different places. I have training in both medical oncology and I'm a palliative care specialist. And in that role, we really try to focus on how to help somebody with their quality of life, how to help with things like symptoms, like you're asking about fatigue, which is a big one. You know, how do we help make sure that we have an understanding of what that patient's experience is so we can really help with symptoms and side effects help with things like coping and the distress that goes along with a cancer diagnosis and help a person really understand what is the diagnosis, what decisions need to be made, and how to share with us what's a sense of what matters most to her so we can really help address and meet those goals as we also treat the cancer. And so I think things like fatigue and any host of different symptoms that someone might feel from either the cancer or the cancer therapies are absolutely things that we want to help with as an oncologist and when I'm wearing my palliative care hat, certainly in that role. And I think 
in part in writing this book, we really hope to address all that and really take care of the whole person and make sure we have a sense of what that person's experiences as she goes through a cancer diagnosis and treatments and to really help address quality of life and living well and making that be really important. And I should say a major part of the book is that of how to deal with these side effects and what lifestyle modifications and medications can help with it and how to live with progressive cancer. The outcome of breast cancer has really changed I guess since Vince DeVita in the uh, late 70s started with combination chemotherapy, what's the typical outcome of breast cancer diagnosis now? How many people are the ones, and tell us about the change in the diagnosis, even nomenclature of cancer that's occurred lately? There's many different types of breast cancer. As you said, there's the hormone receptor positive, there's HER2 positive, there's triple negative, there's different kinds, you know, subtypes of breast cancer. And for each of those types, there have been new therapies in recent years, certainly that have really changed the landscape of how we treat breast cancer and how well women do. And so over time, people have all done better. Those with early stage breast cancer, those with later stage breast cancer, in general, that women are doing better and hopefully living longer and with good quality of life as well. In terms of your question about, you had asked about screening as a big question earlier in our conversation. And I think that part of this too is getting people screened and checked for breast cancer so that we're diagnosing people earlier. And I think that's in part why the recent recommendations last week or the draft recommendations by the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force really lowered their age of getting screening mammograms to 40 because part of changing the landscape and helping women do better for longer is both these wonderful treatments that we have and it's also by getting women in to be screened and getting their mammograms and getting earlier diagnoses. Now, also, I've noticed that a lot of people have what is called insight or DCIS. What's that? And is that cancer? Is that not cancer? What's the current thoughts on that? First of all, go over what is meant by that, because that used to be considered a cancer and maybe isn't now? It's a good question, Dr. Royzen. So DCIS is also known as stage zero cancer. It's cancer that, it is cancer, but it's cancer that's really in the duct of a breast and hasn't had the capacity to get out or be close to the bloodstream to spread somewhere else. So DCIS does not metastasize. However, it does need to be treated, and the standard treatment is to have surgery and often radiation therapy, and sometimes people can take pills like tamoxifen or the aromatase inhibitors, which is another family of blocking estrogen, to really lower their risk of kind of a subsequent breast cancer. I think in general, it is a cancer. It's a stage zero cancer. People do extraordinarily well, and these cancers are important to address however, do not have the ability to metastasize. So I think that with early screening, we are catching a lot of these early stage or stage zero ductal carcinoma in situ cancers as well. One of the things that is obviously intent here, at least in Cleveland, is there seems to be a increasing number of women with breast cancer. Is that because the screening techniques are better 
Is that because of lifestyle changes that have occurred? And is that real? In other words, are more women being diagnosed with breast cancer as a percent of the population? Or is it just that we get to see it because we have a, uh, a population that's specialized referrals? You know, I'll say that breast cancer, as you probably know, is that, you know, the second most common cancer in women after skin cancers. It's very common, you know, one in eight or nine women get breast cancer. I think one of the trends that we're seeing is that younger women, like women in their 40s in recent years, that there's been an uptick of cases of women in their 40s. And I think actually that's part of the reason why the recent draft recommendations by the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force had lowered that age of screening from 50 to 40, in part because of this, these recent trends of having more women in their 40s being diagnosed. And thus, there was a lot of excitement here in Cleveland because of a vaccine against that was started trials about six months ago now, I think, for the most serious or the most devastating form of cancer. Do you think there will be vaccines against much of the types of cancer? Or what's your thoughts on that hope in the future? Or is that from my hope of vaccinating away most cancers? I think that medical change and development over time has been so incredible. As you may know, immunotherapies, you know, were not used in standard practice, you know, over a decade ago. And now there are so many different immune targeted therapies for cancers in general. And things like vaccines are one way of also manipulating the immune system to hopefully go off and fight cancer. So I can't say that things like vaccines will, we hope that there is going to be always a new technology to be able to fight cancer. And vaccines are in clinical trials and time will tell if that's one strategy that we can add to our toolkit along with immunotherapy. And now as a palliative care doc, let me go and ask you, what's the one thing you wish you had? that you don't have in your armamentarium? Do you mean apart from the magic wand that I wish I had to cure yes. to, and heal? Yes, of course. <laughs> we all wish for that, I know, I know. I feel so fortunate to really have trained in both of these fields, you know, where I have the medical oncology training, and then I hope that I infuse my palliative care training and really focusing on quality of life and having really being able to have my eye on what a person's goals are in my practice as an oncologist and certainly my practice as a palliative care physician as well. I think that there's always things that we're hoping more for. You know, what are better and the new therapies to treat symptoms like pain or nausea to really help people with their coping and distress and mood. And so I think that we always are open to where the field is going and that, that we hope in coming years that there's always going to be new therapies that really help a person address those things that really impact their quality of life from medications to different therapies like psychotherapy to help with coping and distress and to really helping train the new wave of doctors that are oncologists or any field they're in, in having what we call primary palliative care skills. So they might not be specialists in palliative care, but that they have that toolkit of how to help address symptoms and coping and being able to understand how to best communicate and know what a patient's goals are. And so we, you know, in medical schools and in residencies, doctors are being trained in palliative care. And even though they might not go into that as a specialty, that that's something that they have in their back pocket to really use in their practice. And so I, that's been a hope for all of us that we can really train the new guard of doctors. And I think thankfully in so many programs, palliative care is getting integrated into their training. 
The book is Living with Breast Cancer. A group of experts led by Jennifer Shin have written this. It's available anyplace. The step-by-step guide for minimizing side effects and maximizing quality of life. Again, living with breast cancer. Jennifer, thanks incredibly for what you do and for writing the book. I have forgotten to ask you, is there a website that features the book? You know, I mean, it, it, the book is, you can purchase on Amazon, certainly. So there's some more information in the detailed description just about, you know, what you might find and, and how hopefully it might serve you and your family. Thanks very much. Again, Living with Breast Cancer. And thank our sponsors, both Life's First Naturals, the makers of True Biotics and of Bovine Colostrum, both of which I consume daily, as well as the Longevity Playbook. You can go to lifesfirstnaturals.com to see the randomized controlled trials that show their benefits in specific conditions in preventing or managing urinary tract infections in the postmenopausal woman. Thanks again, Jennifer, for a wonderful set but especially thank you, our listeners, for downloading us. 50,000 a week of you can't all be wrong. In fact, you're all right in my mind. And this is a great another interview. Thank you, Jennifer. This was 1152B. See you next week.